Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We venerated the stone in the town of Bethany on which our Savior sat waiting for Mary to be brought by Martha back to him to hear those amazing words. The sequence of events in this gospel take us to the reality of the relationship that Jesus has with people. There is, as you probably detected, a note of frustration when Christ speaks to his disciples about the sickness, the sleep of Lazarus, which is death. I am glad that I wasn't there to help out, that you may believe. What is so clear, amazingly enough, is that the disciples do not understand who he is. Not during Holy Week, not on Good Friday. They do not comprehend, though they accept the fact of his resurrection. And it will not be until Pentecost that the visitation by the Holy Spirit brings things together within them in such a way that at long last they figure it out. But here we have the great difficulty of faith. The disciples hang on to him, probably still largely motivated by the hope that there is going to be a change of government. <coughs> And although you and I find that so utterly trivial now, since all the governments of the day that so powerfully vex them have long since vanished, we ourselves are held back by equally trivial things, except that there are trivial things, and therefore they have great moment with us, they have great traction in us. But Christ is obviously disinterested in who is ruling in Jerusalem. The entire ministry asks a different question, and that is, who rules your heart? To whom we pay our taxes is in the final wash irrelevant. Whom we worship is everything. So he comes to this family about whom it is said he loved them, Martha and Mary and the brother, Lazarus, who sleeps the sleep of death. He loves them, and they have a kind of sense 
that he has within himself some power. But let us be candid here. The powers that even those who are close to him understand that he has are in no sense unique. To be honest about it, Israel and indeed the entire Mediterranean basin is full of men who have somehow some power to heal sickness. And let us be very frank about it, even the pagans have some such people with some such powers. The point is that it is no big deal. It is not to ascribe divinity to Jesus of Nazareth, to say to him, if thou hadst been here, our brother would not have died. That sentence could have been honestly spoken to Lord knows how many others on that day. Good heavens! One of the stories my grandmother, a nurse, used to retail about old mid-nineteenth century up-country, back-country, swamp Yankee, northern Vermont, was those men and women who had a healing touch. As with the Samaritan woman, Christ is not going to discuss any of these things with Martha. The conversation that the Lord God would have with this bereaved woman, 15 furlongs outside of Jerusalem, has to do with the resurrection. That's the point. And Martha, no slouch, is able to come right back at him. Yes, I know he's going to rise in the general resurrection at the crack of doom and the end of time and the end of the world. And Christ says, I am that resurrection. And this is what is utterly new about Christianity. He doesn't say, I am the way, I am the one who points you towards the way. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I am the one who can guide you to life. He says, I am the life. He doesn't say, we can discuss the abstract noun resurrection and define it according to our lights. He says, I am that resurrection. These are the claims. This is the bold assertion of the man. It is this that is so completely difficult, almost beyond the ken and grasp of the men who were closest to him, the disciples, 
who remained for so utterly long a period of time in a state of confusion over all of this. And Christ always seems to be so so at peace with their confusion. Every now and then a note of frustration, he upbraids them, but he sticks with them. The interiorization and the personalizing of what had been known to the Hebrews from ancient times, the appropriation of abstract nouns and the rendering of those nouns personal in him constitutes the Christian revolution. It is what is always radical about Christ. And there is just no evading the issue that either that is true or it isn't. Either it is true and you believe that it is true or you don't. And if it is true and if you believe that it is true, you are going to behave in this way and not in that. Lazarus Saturday comes to us in this this period between Lent, which ended yesterday, and Holy Week, which begins the day after tomorrow. The dietary fast is relaxed a little. We are not using the Lenten chant tone. We aren't, in fact, in Lent. Lazarus Saturday and Palm Sunday constitute their own unique moment in the liturgical order of the Church. Lazarus is, of course, summoned back to life. The kind of God we have is a God who weeps over our mortality. And God only weeps over those things that he himself is not responsible for. He did not create us to die for death. He created us for life and for immortal, eternal life. And so confronted with the death and the stink and the rot of a friend whom he loved, we find the shortest sentence in the Greek text of the New Testament. And Jesus wept. Behold the tears of God for broken man. He wants to see his friend, which is a most unusual request given the culture of the Jews. Lazarus has been properly wrapped up and soaked in uh, preservative spices 
but the Jews understand the condition of the body after four days. He has begun to decay, and the stench will be overwhelming. Christ insists, and unusually, they roll away the stone, and then he calls Lazarus to come forth. You can imagine the state of the minds and stomachs and nerves of the people there as, in fact, this dead man rises from his rigor, his decay, and his stench and stumbles out of this tiny grave. And we have seen the grave of Lazarus, its dimensions, where it is. We have all been in it. And he comes forth to the amazement of the crowd, and it says that many of the Jews who were there believed in him. Let's be frank, it would be rather hard not to, given the circumstances. This is no zombie Hollywood be the Day of the Dead or any of that. This is the miracle of all miracles. Giving sight, healing paralysis and crippling and stopping flows of blood, all very nice. But raising a man four days dead from the grave, now there's, there's something of a different order entirely. We cannot get enough of this feast of Lazarus. We cannot read this gospel enough. We cannot read it too many times. Our eyes probe each word. We pry it off the page. We want to smell it, taste it, handle it. We want to be touched by it. We cannot understand it. We are fascinated by it. Coming, of course, at this moment, it is the human anticipation of the resurrection of the Savior, an entirely different kind of resurrection that will occur one week from now. But this whole event in and of itself carries us to the core of what is genuinely amazing about Christian faith. At its heart, is the conviction that the dead will live again and that their eternity is Christ. Not something Christ gives us, but himself. He does not give us eternal life. He is our eternal life. There is nothing like that on earth. There is nothing like that that has ever occurred to man. Nothing like this was foreseen. But here it is, beginning to burst open in front of us. And we stand looking at it with curiosity, 
fascination or indifference. And that is the way it is. And what they say is true. Ideas have consequences. And so do beliefs. Amen.